the RegTech Roundup podcast series focusing on regulatory initiatives and technical impl implementations of such initiatives. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about something that's top of mind for many FIs, ESG. Um, along with ESG, we need to understand where the data is, how we're going to implement it. So today's podcast is titled Shining a Green Light on Your ESG Data. For those who don't know, my name is Paul McClory. I'm a technical lead at a major FI focusing in capital markets and wealth technology. Um, for those of you who don't know, Canadian RegTech Association is a non-for-profit organization focused on solving regulatory challenges through collaborative efforts between key RegTech stakeholders, regulated entities, and technology vendors and regulatory bodies. Today, we're joined by two key subject matter experts in the, in the field of ESG. Ali Kamarali and Martin Brut. Ali is an associate partner practice lead at IBM, focused in sustainability, risk, and compliance. His background includes 14 years of risk and compliance expertise in banking, management consulting, and regulatory supervision for mid to large FIs across Canada, Asia, and the Caribbean. Martin is a VP of marketing and strategy at Elvio Technology, which is a global financial data management solutions provider. He's a published author. And Martin has previously worked at ABN, AMRO, iGate, and Euroclear with financial data, data management products, and information services as a common theme. So data and in the context of ESGs is really having a moment, um, very in vogue. And um, we're lucky to have you both here. Uh, Martin, from a European perspective, Ali, representing more of a North American perspective. This is a global um, impact. So thank you again for joining us today. Um, first, I kind of want to understand, like data is something that all FIs are chewing through. Um, so kind of what are some of the FIs facing when they meet uh, mandatory and voluntary disclosure in their ESG requirements? And what's driving FIs to conform to these new standards as they evolve? I was hoping we could start with you, Martin. Sure. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Paul. And uh, very happy to be here. Um, I think what's driving FIs is... I guess two things. I mean, one is a certainly a regulatory push with a host of new regulation being introduced um, um, for the various sectors of the financial services. But there's also a, a pull from uh, from clients, uh, for example, uh, more investor appetite for um, uh, for ESG product offerings. So a lot more inflows into uh, ESG investment offerings. Um, and I think in terms of challenges um, that they sort of yeah, face in, in in living up to these. Um, um, regulatory disclosures or indeed sort of client disclosures. I think there are a number of different um, um, issues there. I think first and foremost, there is an availability gap of, uh, of data. Like a lot of firms don't report yet. Um, certainly in where I'm sitting in the uh, European Union, the, the requirements on corporates to disclose lag behind those of asset managers to, to report. So uh, you have a sort of paradoxical situation that, 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 that uh, investment managers need to report on the firms they invest in um, without the, the actual firms having to do that uh, themselves yet. So that means a lot of data is hard to find and they have to rely in turn of, on some of their own assessments, uh, third-party expert opinion, or take a shortcut. So in, in, in essence, taking a rating or, or a score from a, uh, from a third party. Um, as an example um, to that um, sort of gap in data coverage and availability, one of the trade associations um, here, this was um, Funds Ireland, so the Irish um, um, Association of, uh, of um, fund managers did a survey a while back and found that six out of the 14 mandatory fields in the um, disclosure regulation for um, for uh, asset managers are very difficult to find. 
Um, gender pay gap, I think, is a, is a notorious example. Uh, and of course, if you want to track progress over multiple years or report over a longer horizon, then you need historical data, which is um, even harder. So um, I think availability is one. Um, usability is another one. Uh, you can't just take a data set out of the annual report or the corporate disclosure. And you have a sort of burgeoning market in ratings, scores, third-party expert opinions. So, uh, but you can't do a like-for-like -like comparison because each of these rating uh, companies has their own methodology to yeah, to score, to to aggregate, to, um, um, to how they weigh the different uh, components that go into an ESG rating. So um, maybe the data landscape is a bit of a wild west at the moment. I think um, there's certainly incumbents. There's a lot of new players that uh, come up with their own perspective on distilling ESG metrics from uh, all kinds of disclosures and, and, and public information. Um, so I would add to the availability and the usability uh, issues, I would say also there's a comparability issue right, to, uh, yeah, to sort of roll up uh, different perspectives and come to, uh, come to a composite view. It's fascinating that these timelines can have to coincide you know, availability of the data as well as meeting the requirements. Um, Ali, I don't know if there's a North American component, but you know, where are your thoughts in terms of um, FIs, uh, maybe taking a step back and, and what's driving their uh, confirmation? Yeah, thanks very much, Sorry. Paul. Yeah. I very much agree with uh, Martin on that. And, and, you know, I think you put it up and you said that the, the focus here is it's a bit of a wild west when it comes to data. Um, somehow we've really put the cart before the horse uh, on, on uh, reporting when it comes to the availability of data for specific reports. I'll give you an example. When we think about the availability of data, um, and, and, and Martin said this too, it, it's, it's not always in a curated form. It's not always in one place, and it's not always usable. I think what we're finding is, is some of the requirements, especially when we think of something like scope three, um, which, which is now becoming uh, more and more, um, I would say, focused to, to a reporting standard and to a target setting standard, um, as we see uh, coming through the SPTI. Uh, is where is that data? Where is it located? Who is it sitting with me? Is it sitting with my vendor? Is it sitting with my customer? Um, and how do I get a better handle on that so as to avoid things like double counting and duplication? And the second part of that is, you know, traditionally in, in the banking sector, as an example, some of the data might not be actually part of the request for information at this point. And so when we think about how banks underwrite and, and the underwriting um, requirements and the data requirements in order to enable the loan and the provision of that funding um, doesn't necessarily come with the specific elements of the company's carbon footprint. And so um, the next question would be is, is if you were to do proper finance emissions calculations, well, where, where's the data with your lender? How often is that data gonna be refreshed? Um, is that at the asset level um, or is it at the company level? So I think there are a number of challenges that we're facing. And I would say in this particular case, um, the challenge is a global challenge more than um, any specific nuance to the North American challenge. Um, other than uh, when we think about uh, sector decarbonization approaches, which are specific to target setting, uh, there are a variety of differences between uh, what data and, and methodologies are needed um, at the region specific level, as I can think of Canada could be de decarbonizing at a different rate than another jurisdiction. So we have to be mindful of that. Now, Within the kind of parameters that have been set, what are clients doing today to respond uh, to the data gap and again, the requirements? Maybe Ali, you wanna continue on? 
Yeah, sure. And, you know, I think it's, I think it's really interesting because as we, as we push on the data um, question, we're, we're really pushing on what does that mean to an FY? What does that mean to an organization? So I, I can bucket it into three way or four ways that uh, climate change in general is putting pressure. One is, is on the journey to net zero. What uh, is required from a strategy and operation standpoint to be more sustainable in the long run? The second point of this is, is ESG data and climate risk. Um, how do I think about my risk and, and what are some of the mitigation factors in order to either transition or define materiality, things like finance emissions, integrating climate risk into outputs. The third category is finance emissions, or sorry, uh, sustainable finance. Um, this is expanding as we think about the financing of the transition to net zero, the amount of money and, and uh, the banking, the banking uh, sector that's now pulling together, as an example, will be the uh, the um, G fans. And the last one is the experience that their that their banks are giving their customers. So, um, I think the way the banks are responding is into these four categories. They're looking for ways uh, to reduce the the impact that they're having. Uh, on various sectors through finance emissions. So that is improving the journey to net zero. They're looking at technology to, to really clean out some of the old legacy systems that, that banks traditionally operate, large banks traditionally operate on today. The other, they were, the, the other way they're responding is, is through climate risk analytics and management. They're building in, um, and OSFI has just done a pilot with uh, a group of, um, a group of uh, uh, financial entities within the Canadian landscape, including banks and insurance companies to understand the physical and transition risk that is impacting both the sector, but also their customers. And so banks are starting to embed uh, unique physical and transition risk methodologies um, and the data and the requirements that go into producing accurate and, and uh, I would say usable um, uh, uh, reports and analysis to make better decisions on the bank's uh, climate risk. The third one is, is sustainable finance and, and truly thinking about um, the opportunity to um, enable more uh, and faster transition to net zero through the um, through the uh, procurement and provision of, of, of all this capital that we see come out of COP26 uh, for the benefit of renewable energy products and, and projects uh, as well. And the last one is, is really speaking to the essence of what the bank, I would call it a, a community bank, is supposed to do. It's, it's supposed to provide services for its customers. Um, but with that is the opportunity uh, to create a customer, uh, sustainable customer client experience, um, helping our clients feel good about the decisions that they're making to understand their carbon footprint, to think about ways to uh, green uh, the banking uh, process. Uh, so I think they're responding in these four major ways. I appreciate the way you said that. Like at the end, the bank still has to be a bank, right? Given, uh, irrespective of this new paradigm shift, focus on um, sustainability. Um, now, Martin, in Europe, is there anything that kind of contrasts or conflicts, or is it the same kind of outlook? Or what are what are you seeing your clients um, in the EU? Uh, how are they approaching this? Yeah, I can I can expand a bit on the, on what uh, what Ali was mentioning. Although he covered a lot of ground already. Um, I mean, we work with, with both sort of um, the buy side as well as the sell side. Um, maybe to start with the, uh, with the investment management community, uh, I think what we have seen is that there were certainly was a group that, that has been using sort of ESG data in, in, in the front office uh, trying to isolate uh, ESG factors for their uh, asset allocation. 
um, there have been sort of yeah, impact investors uh, for quite some time. It's becoming more uh, more mainstream given the uh, sort of investor appetite that I mentioned. Um, and what you now have is the uh, yeah, what I referred to earlier, the uh, SFDR or the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, which requires anyone that uh, uh, sells investment funds in, in, inside the European Union to a report on 18 um, um, uh, PAIs or principal adverse impact indicators, 14 for corporates, and then the rest is for um, uh, real estate investments or for sovereigns. And uh, that, that gives us sort of a range of um, um, metrics on ESG uh, criteria, like including pollution, uh, biodiversity, uh, carbon emissions, obviously, uh, also social aspects uh, uh, as well. Um, that is driving sort of greater transparency. Uh, it is also driving a need for for data on the on the uh, on the corporates that uh, uh, firms invest in, uh, and I think the impact of that, again, from a sort of data and, and an operational perspective, is that um, what was before maybe uh, confined to the front office uh, needs to find its way into every yeah, every business process in the alongside the uh, investment management process. Right? So client reporting, um, it starts with the material on the, the prospectuses, the sort of uh, pre-contractual disclosures on funds. Uh, then uh, regular reporting um, um, to customers as well as to uh, uh, to regulators. So that's really on the uh, on the uh, investment management side. And for the banks, what we what we see, we see it also impacting a number of um, areas. Certainly, what what Ali was mentioning, the sort of the, the financing, financing the transition to uh, say um, uh, say an energy transition, uh, decarbonization of the uh, of the economy. There's the European Green Deal that, uh, that um, tries to sort of uh, stimulate that. Um, the regulatory uh, sort of implication of that, uh, or the regulatory um, uh, lever there is uh, something called the green asset ratio, which essentially means the portion of the banking book that is, um, yeah, that is sort of um, uh, devoted or spent on, on sustainable uh, activities. So what has happened is that there is a, a taxonomy of business activities that has been introduced called the uh, EU taxonomy. That is going to be used to sort of underpin the um, uh, the report the reporting in the future. Um, so that's the let's say the banking book sort of the, the general purpose lending. What kind of corporates does it uh, does it does it go to? What is the breakdown of their uh, of their business activities? Um, that drives transparency. There is an element also of climate stress testing. So on the um, uh, on the bank sort of um, portfolio. So different scenarios. Uh, the European Central Bank has introduced that. Uh, the Bank of England has done that. Uh, Mass in Singapore as well. So various jurisdictions are also imposing, say, climate stress scenarios uh, on banks, basically as a shock to see what happens to the solvency of the uh, of the institution. And then even I think on the uh, on the uh, uh, on the retail lending side, say on the uh, the mortgage book, for example, uh, I think you're going to see uh, preferential rates, for example, again also with a regulatory stimulus behind it. Um, things like uh, uh, better age if you want to insulate sort of uh, older houses, for example, right? Or reflecting the risk if you want to construct <laughs> in coastal areas or on river floodplains, uh, things like that. So you can see it there as well. And then lastly, I think it's going to have an impact also on the um, uh, on client onboarding processes. So on on, uh, on KYC, um, when you as a new corporate client, um, you go to a bank. You're going to be asked a lot more uh, questions uh, as part of the onboarding process, and the same, I guess, will happen for uh, for suppliers. Yeah. Uh, so, and Ali, I appreciate that. But Ali, what are you um, seeing on the Canadian regulatory front? Is there is there something different that, uh, outside of 
what uh, Martin just outlaid? No, I mean, I would say that uh, we're, we're sort of in, just in terms of our jurisdiction slightly mm -hmm. behind um, the speed and pace that uh, the European Union, <clears throat> the European markets are following both from a regulatory front as well as from a reporting front. But I, I think with that being said, the speed of which uh, is allowing organizations to start to mobilize the right action in order to get over these challenges. So I would, I would completely agree with Martin on that. Yeah. Okay, great. I think, so people are on side. I mean, to sum it up very kind of uh, quickly that people are on side. It's uh, definitely more mainstream. We're aware of where the gaps are. Um, from a future perspective, you know, what are the best practices that we're going to see on, uh, evolve? I know, Martin, you talked about Kind of onboarding and, and procuring some of that data and so my question i think maybe al you can continue here is um what kind of standard development processes application potential uh, solutions are going to be uh, looking to be implemented in the future and how are we um from a solution perspective going to get ahead of or you know when you said cart before the horse how do we bring the regulatory uh, requirements kind of closer together um, and ensure that we're going to hit them out the gate instead of kind of backfilling. Yeah, yeah thanks for the question. Um, and it's it's definitely one that I would say is a um, multi-linear uh, um, solution. There's there's there needs to be focuses happening on all fronts. So let me start with uh, what I think is the 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 issue, uh, and then how how organizations can think about solving it. Um, there isn't enough open source sources. And, and the reason for that is, is because individual reporting creates the data quality issues that, that Martin had spoke, spoken about, uh, both from a reporting and measurement uh, standpoint, the inconsistencies that come with uh, siloed uh, data as well, and then the infrastructure challenges that are unfortunately the, the um, last aspect that makes it difficult for organizations to really start to compare and share uh, data in a reliable way. So the way forward is, is to start thinking about mobilizing more of an ecosystem solution around data, around carbon accounting, and around the uh, reliability and transparency of the data that is uh, reported. So one, can organizations mobilize together um, to really create a comprehensive reporting source of truth? That, uh, that creates this benchmark of data that allows organizations to not only um, submit quality information, but it produces this, this, this comparable, uh, shareable platform. And then overlay on top of that a, a standard, which there are uh, in the industry, such as PCAF and GHG protocols, um, but the standard that allows everyone to, to compare uh, and have interoperability with both the accounting side as well as the um, reporting side of, of data. So there, the, the two ways that I feel organizations can, can, can start to address this is uh, to join more open source organizations that are attempting to create this standard playing field. And the second is, is to gather more data. <clears throat> now, I say that um, because one of the challenges is um, can we, can we, how, how reliable is the data that we're getting from aggregators? Um, sometimes when we think about aggregation, we take these data uh, systems and silos and, and we bring them all together and we say we have the biggest 
strongest, most comprehensive database of data, and, and we can sell it to you. Um, but I don't think that is uh, the solution. I think the solution is to be um, able to gather data individually, to leverage data from third-party sources, and to be able to submit data to open source systems. And in those three ways, we're going to establish a new boundary that allows organizations to use data for the benefit of what I think is the true purpose. It's transparency and accountability of our carbon footprint on that of our organizations and our communities and our, and our um, customers, but also to better understand the environment's impact on us as a society as that continues to become more and more um, prevalent through climate change. Martin, for you, anything else from a future perspective? Were you seeing kind of uh, understand the EU's leading a little bit? What what are what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think mobilization, the word that Ali used, I think is the operative word here. Um, I think we're gonna have some, I think we're gonna have some sort of I think intra um, jurisdiction sort of crossovers, um, if you like. Um, this could be, for example, in sort of the trade agreements, like the sort of seed there between the EU and Canada, uh, the next round of that. Uh, I think also you're going to see organizations that have sort of a global sort of remit to, um, um, to be more active. So just as an example, the, the, the BIS, or the, the Bank for International Settlements, just closed a consultation on the uh, principles for the effective management and supervision of climate-related financial risks, I think, last, uh, uh, last week. Uh, that took to me a bit like the sort of the, the, the BCBS 239 for, uh, for EG data, uh, if you like. So I think you're going to have some sort of policy guidelines uh, that have a sort of global uh, 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 implication. And I think certainly also in the accounting standards, right? I mean, this is maybe a sort of a, a longer term process, but what the uh, IESB announced uh, at the Glasgow conference for the ESB um, um, uh, initiative, I think that will find its way into uh, into any reports, financial accounting uh, over time. So there is, um, there is that. I think in the meantime, I think ESG considerations like all of sound decision making requires good quality data, right? You need to have the facts, so you need to sort of get your sort of best, uh, best judgment. Um, transparency, yes, documenting decisions, right? Uh, trying to get a sort of a sound base basis for decision making and external reporting, overcoming some of the data issues that we uh, uh, that we uh, discussed, and then standards like the taxonomy I mentioned that sort of will uh, will help. But yeah, having said that, even with the, the best data in the world, if it just sits there, say, pristine in a, in a database or data warehouse, that's not going to do anyone any favors. Right? So I think what will happen and what needs to happen is to have that data, to have as much transparency as possible, but then to have the workflow integration. Right? So weave the data into decision-making, make it available, uh, an organizational uh, shift to not have sort of easy as a sort of separate bucket of data that, uh, that uh, sits somewhere as the next uh, data silo, something that can really sort of weave its way into all aspects of uh, of decision making and it will have to feed also into um yeah financial risk assessment financial reporting uh risk reporting let's say the sort of uh, the place in firms where typically all the information uh, threats come together uh, okay yeah um i have actually one last question and we have a bit of time i was wondering ali um what do you think about the canada the canada's involvement in the isb yeah, thanks for the question. Um, <clears throat> so, Amy, before I before I get to the answer for that, I, I would say that uh, you know Canada has a a, a rich 
fabric in our society. You know, we we have um, you know a variety of sectors that are uh, geared and I would say connected to the environment. You know, we have um, industries and and uh, sectors that are uh, generating their business on the environment um, and and the resources that it provides. And I'd say the last part of that is um, surrounding. Uh, corporate Canada is, is the communities that are often left disenfranchised, which is our Indigenous communities, as an example. Um, and so as we think about the data challenges, um, it's it's important to start to include um, the I and ESG, which for what we believe is, is the Indigenous aspects that also require data so that decisions uh, made by organizations can can actually be made in the context of those that it, that it matters to the most. And I think Canada's involvement is, we know that um, you know, Montreal is going to be a home base for, for the ISSB, and there's an opportunity here for, for Canada to take the lead uh, around um, this sort of centralized uh, notion of reporting, uh, one that I think will be very beneficial for, for the industry. Uh, for for a ver- variety of uh, corporate uh, uh, organizations within in, in a variety of industries, I really think that uh, Canada's natural position in the market and, and the diversity of, of our um, of our communities and of our country is going to establish uh, and, and manifest itself well into the future of this um, uh, organization and, and centralized and, and consolidated reporting standards. So. I look forward to it, and I think um, I, I hope that uh, it continues to grow in influence and, and support. I think some of the innovation that's happening elsewhere as well uh, in the world. Thank you. I'm glad to just touch that one at the end. Um, I really appreciated you both, Ali, Martin, uh, going through this topic. It's uh, um, the mobilization, this mainstream kind of uh, appeal, and, and understanding it's actually the requirement is good for all of us. For all our listeners, thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to the RegTech Roundup podcast via your favorite channel and leave us a comment. The RegTech Roundup podcast is available on a number of platforms, including Apple, Spotify, Google, and of course, you found on our website, canadianregtech.ca.